Hello, welcome to Lamniforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I'm the songwriter in the band Lamniforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today I am joined by Sophie Cox and Chandler Kelly of True Blossom, a five-piece band based in Atlanta, Georgia. True Blossom recently released their second full-length album, In Bliss, through Citrus City Records. Like their debut, Heater, In Bliss melds new wave, disco, sophistipop, and city pop into a sleek and precise sound. We spoke about the band's origins of the Atlanta DIY scene, how they settled on their sound, and the growing popularity of quote-unquote easy-listening genres among aging millennials. Thank you for listening. But yeah, I'm, I'm psyched about the new record. I uh, really like listening to it. I just listened to the two albums back to back just to kind of get a sense of like the jump from one to the other. And I think there is a jump, actually. I, I, I think there's like a, a pretty serious like refinement of what what the band does from from the first album to the second so congratulations on that thank you yeah i'm not sure how much like refinement was like uh intentional or like there was a strategy or a plan or i could even tell you what we did differently but it definitely does sound different i mean we made it in a different studio you know with different the different person so like the snare sounds different like things like that but like you know whatever i guess like you know what it might might be a big difference is that i started writing some of the songs from um from Peter before the band really existed like i wrote like three or four songs and then i like was like right you know let's find who wants to play these songs with us and sort of tell you know uh found people that wanted to join the band with the songs already written and then uh you know a couple other songs from heater we wrote when we had only practiced like you know five, six, seven times or something. And early on, I imagined it being this like, uh, like a fuzzier, like a, like using distortion and uh, almost being like a black tambourine kind of thing. This record obviously written, knowing what our band sounds like, maybe is the difference. Like, you know, knowing, who, knowing who's in the band when I wrote all of the songs and knowing what we are good at playing. And so when you were writing those first few songs, were you playing in other bands uh and we're writing these on the side like how did those first few tracks come about um i I was in another band called shampoo and uh one of the members moved away to go to to because her husband went to uh uh, started a phd program in minneapolis so i I was in a band that i I knew was breaking up so i started writing for like another thing that band didn't have like live drums it was much more dreamy and this one i want so i wanted to do something that was more like live bandish so i was imagining it being a kind of loud and then when we got all the people together it turned out we sounded better sounding like you know we do as a sort of like sort of disco new wave band and so how did the band then come together like how did did y'all know each other previously what what was the uh, the origin story so to speak <laughs> well me and sophie have known each other for uh, a, quite a long time <laughs> do you want to explain sophie yeah, we probably met in 2002 or three. Oh, before so, that. No, no. Well, you know, it, it's it was been a while, but basically, uh, not basically, Chandler is my boyfriend's brother, and I've been with uh, my boyfriend since 2006 or seven. So, but I know I knew both of them before that, and um, did actually a little bit of music stuff with Chandler in high school. Uh, including a musical. Um, oh, yeah, that's true. Probably where we really became friends, I would say. Um, Which musical was it? It was Ragtime. Ragtime. Okay. I was Emma Goldman. <laughs> um, yeah, she played Emma Goldman. It was sick. <laughs> yeah, kind of the honor of my life, you know, um, in ninth grade, of, you know, so that's probably when I peaked in my singing career but um yeah we used to do some music stuff with people that still do music stuff but then Chandler you kind of knew at least Jameson um, and Nadav kind of from just bands in Atlanta I was kind of the outsider there before you peaked in ninth grade were you doing music before then like how did you start playing music yeah I was always a choir nerd um uh, before that though technically I was a piano 
person. So I played piano from like first grade to senior year of high school. And so that was sort of my first intro into, into music. Um, probably a very common thing, uh, but definitely recommended if anyone's interested in getting into music. Piano is a great instrument, great way to learn. I love people that write songs for the piano. Um, just love it. Uh, mm -hmm. But then I joined, you know, choirs from my elementary school and then a community choir as I got older, um, started getting more into that. And then actually one of my very dear friends was in that band Shampoo with Chandler, who I met through choir. So kind of, that was kind of a musical connection I could make. So it's, you know, we live in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a, it's a city, but it's a small town too. So I feel like there's a lot of connected stories like that. And so yeah. were you also it play like singing in bands outside of choir or was it just like an academic pursuit, so to speak? Yeah. With Chandler's um with Chandler's brother um and other friends, like we definitely did um some bands and just different projects and I would just kind of hop on it either like for a show or maybe, you know, if someone needed help uh recording, I would jump in. Um and then my boyfriend and I would kind of work on things together as well throughout high school but um, I would say in college it kind of stopped for a while because I had to focus on staying in college <laughs> I would say <laughs> very important for me at the time so it kind of took a long break and True Blossom is kind of the first thing I did when I returned I would mm -hmm. say back when we were in high school my uh I had like a band in middle school or whatever you know like a Weezer ripoff like dumb like boneheaded rock band and our guitarist's brother formed a rap group that was like a sounded like a goody mob or like uh, cash money records just like southern rap of the time or whatever and they built they actually ended up getting signed at one point they had a whole story but they built a little studio in our guitarist's basement just to record to record rap to rap vocals just those the vocals you know because they would just like make big sound loops or whatever and then at some point we realized that we could like use the studio to like, it's like we buy like you know they had a, a, a interface that had more than one input or whatever so like we can just get a couple more mics and we can do drums and then we you know blah, 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 blah. that was basically when i started like writing songs and like a bunch of my friends also started just like writing songs and recording them at my friend's house and the model back then was very much like uh, the Saddle Creek bands and like Neutral Milk Hotel and the microphones. And it's like a lot of bands that were actually just one person and then all their friends. The mm -hmm. K, like a lot of K Records bands are this way. So that was our model. That's what we did. So like all these albums we made when we were like 16 or 17, where it was the same five or six people playing different people's songs. And Sophie sings and plays like organ since because she was like one of the people we knew that could actually play like a keyboard instrument. <laughs> so she's on like all these records. But you know, there was no, there was no bands really to speak of. She was, you know, yeah, I would she say was it was all the bands and none of the bands. Yeah. And I would say it was really for us, you know, it was something fun to do. And we would, every summer we'd put on these festivals, you know, at someone's backyard. And it was just really a bunch of high schoolers, like having some good times as well, you know, but it was, it was centered around people performing, which was fun. Was there a lot of that kind of, because I, I know very little about the Atlanta scene outside of like the more commonly told story about like the, obviously the, you know, very popular hip hop scene that came out of there. But in terms of DIY, was there a lot of like backyard shows or people throwing house shows and stuff like that? Was that like a pretty common thing when you were growing up? There was, because I was in high school basically during the rise of the Black Lips and Deer Hunter and that they were, they lived in the same part of town. So there were these shows and they would happen in unfinished basements and house shows. They basically had a, but uh, it was like all psych, psychedelic, like noise garage punk thing even more than the way that like Deer Hunter ended up sounding, which is a bit of a dream pop band. They did not sound like that before they got literally famous and left it and like they were not really part of the scene anymore. It was a lot of, like they sounded a lot like that band Liars. Yes, um, totally. It was a lot of like covering the 13th, there was a lot of like covering the 13th floor elevators and shit like that um, going on. And we were, you know, our idea of the music we wanted to make was like, I mean, stuff we listened to was like soft and, just like squirrely little indie pop, you know, like uh, Bright Eyes and, yeah, like Neutral Milk Hotel and uh, Yola Tango and Bell and Sebastian and stuff. So we, there was no place for us. And plus we were all underage. So there was just no place for us to be a part of this thing. And I knew some of those people because they all, all those guys like the Deer Hunter and Black Lips and Selmanaires and 
uh, coat hangers. All those people lived on the same part of town as us on the east side. You just see them. The deer hunter had this like weird thing where they had like a, basically a standing residency at this venue called the Drunken Unicorn, where they lost their practice space. I think is the story. So they just had a show every like two weeks, and that was their practice um, <laughs> for a while. So you could like go attend deer hunter practice, and you knew they what they would do would play the same this one, like one song like eight times, right. like as they worked on it, and then they'd be like, okay, we're done, and the show would be over. But we were not. <laughs> We didn't have shows. No, all the, every show we had was in one of our backyards or like some Gary rigged venue. And mom's every basement. one that played the show was just, yeah, or mom's basement. And every single person that played one of these shows was just one of our friends. It was like a completely insular, separated thing. But there was Atlanta, an Atlanta DIY scene back then that was like pretty healthy. We just mm-hmm. were not part of it. <laughs> <laughs> and so did any of those projects end up touring or was it like strictly a local thing at that time? We were like, children we literally like uh because we all left and went to college this is a weird thing about atlanta it's like every, well we all left and went to college and like everyone came back like everyone no one like made it uh so before we all left uh none of these bands we didn't even like we didn't even play shows that weren't the shows at our houses mm-hmm. and then when i came i left for like three years and then i came back and then i put together a band that was like that tried to actually be part of the scene DIY scene in Atlanta and like play real shows and by that time it was like just a completely different thing then there was like a real band and by this time Sophie wasn't really like well you lived in, in Athens. Athens or Chicago or at this point so yeah I was trying to stay in college yeah <laughs> there's a big so there's a big uh break between me and Sophie like worked together a lot when like I was like 18 and she was 15 or whatever and then not at all for a decade mm-hmm now we're working was that something that you tried to do pretty quickly once both of you were back in the same city like did you know that you wanted sophie involved on these songs pretty early on like how did how did that come together i actually asked her to be in the last band i formed and she had just gotten back to atlanta but i think you were just like still i was scared out and and felt overworked i think a little bit back then right you had that kind of shittier job yeah but i was also just scared to be honest. To get on stage and yeah. Yeah, to do it. Like I asked her when I was forming a new band, I was like, I'll just ask Sophie again. Maybe she changed her mind for no reason. And in fact, that's exactly what she had done. She changed her <laughs> mind for no reason and joined my band. Yeah, I was like two years older and wiser and ready to get <laughs> how what was the process between those like first few songs and this kind of like fuzzy, louder version? How quickly did you realize that? It, you needed to shift into something else closer to what the band became on on heater quickly once we started rehearsing part of it is that um our bassist just did not want to play like uh 16th notes like he wanted to most of what he listens to is like a uh, funk and disco and stuff that's a lot of what it was is that he would uh he would play that way and i'd be like i'd be like well i'm about to turn this distortion pedal off this you know I don't want to sound like a Primus or something. Uh, <laughs> it was just like what people were, the people that I wanted to play with because I liked their their bands. Everyone except for Sophie was were just people that were in bands that I liked in Atlanta. By, by this point, Atlanta's, I was like, the Atlanta DIY scene was like very, very healthy and thriving. There were all these bands that were fantastic. But just like any DIY scene, bands come and go real quickly. And so I just like, found the people I knew that had recently their bands had broken up or whatever they had left or whatever and asked them and just like the stuff I was the idea of how we were going to arrange it was not suited for the interests or skills of the people we were playing with so we but we've clicked into what we were doing like pretty fast yeah Do you, and it was good mm, it was good because I feel like everyone felt immediately a part of it and not just like showing up to kind of be told what to do like it it felt like we were actually forming a five-piece band you know yeah which was I think good and part of why we're still a band you know it's like people are excited to come to practice and we have fun you know I remember Jameson showed up the first practice with a with a guitar we were gonna play like a two guitar noisy band he didn't even bring the guitar to the second practice and never (laughs) again like just immediately threw a change the plan like right on the fly and so it sounds like even if you weren't necessarily going in looking to make more disco oriented or sophista pop or whatever you want to call it 
it sounds like you were at least are were fans of that style and could pivot towards it like there wasn't any kind of Mm -hmm. no one had to necessarily do their homework to know how to play this style correctly is that fair to say yeah i don't think adam knew too much about the style but like he's played in a lot of different kinds of bands uh adam who plays drums he's a quick study He's a quick, he figured it out. Never heard like an orange juice record, you know, or whatever. So we like played him stuff like that. And he was just like, this is sick. <laughs> I can do that. Like, but yeah, Jameson. And, uh, I don't know if Nadav is really like familiar with all that, like uh, that like new wave sort of like 80s guitar pop thing, but he knew all the disco records that they were stealing ideas from. So, And then once you had gotten the band together and you'd sort of, you know, pivoted to this new sound, what was the process towards making the first record? Like how long did that take? You know, what was the writing process like, et cetera? Like it happened pretty fast. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I'd never done anything like that before. So I don't know, but it was, I feel like we started like eight months in recording. Yeah. We started tracking like less than a year into being into like our first, after our first practice. I owe it for the longest time in my life. It was like such, such a struggle for me to write like a song that I was happy with figure something out and just like I don't know something I like became much more prolific about right around the time that we formed this band and just like immediately had it we had the second album so we started recording the first album like I would say like yeah like eight months after our first practice and by the time we finished it we had already had we were already starting this like recording the second one by the time the first one came out wow yeah we had the third one written <laughs> we haven't been able to practice some of the songs but like it's written and so is it just you that's writing the tunes or is it fairly democratic? The melodies and chords, mostly I write, though Jameson wrote a few songs from scratch and several of the like bridges and stuff were written by, like Nadav wrote the bridge to Mutiny. He wrote a couple things. That's the thing that's like leaping to my mind. But they're not yeah. arranged when I, they're not arranged when I bring them. We like, and Sophie writes all the lyrics. So like it's, they all start with me, but they don't, they immediately stop being mine. And so were you playing live in that eight month period of time before the uh, the recording of the first record too? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a big thriving scene that we could just like walk walk into. And so did like playing the songs live help clarify any of the ideas as you were working towards that album or what was the relationship between like the sort of the record and the live show? Hmm, that's a good question. We, it's not like we, uh, we didn't do a lot of arranging in the studio. We basically, what you hear is pretty much the live versions, which is weird because they sound very dry. And one of the coupled songs have drum machines instead of live drums. And it's very synthy and sounds programmed, but they're pretty much just what we do live. I mean, like, uh, like flu punks is just Adam's drum part programmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, if that's what you mean, we we arranged them by like to be live and then we just recorded that gotcha yeah that's kind of what i was trying to like tease out is like the a band jumping that into being a recording project that quickly to me at least would indicate that the record is kind of the point if you know what i'm saying and that the mm-hmm. live mm-hmm. band is more of like an ancillary thing but it sounds yeah. like you figure out how to do it live later yeah exactly but it's, it sounds like it was not that way if i'm understanding correctly yeah, despite the way that we sound, maybe we're like a very ordinary rock band in many ways. And one of them is that we like get in a room and all face each other with amps and we play the songs and there's the song. Uh, this, th- this, the second one we tracked, um, we did all the, we did it like live in a room. We did like bass, guitar, and drums all at once. Uh, most of the synthesizers too. And we ended up keeping, we were just doing that to get drums, you know, you know, classic way to do play, all, all play together and put mics on stuff, but just keep the drums. And then we ended up keeping basically everything. So we basically, uh, they're like actually live in the studio recordings mostly, except for mm-hmm. Sophie's vocals. I bet that saved you a ton of time. So that's yeah. like, a- <laughs> yeah. And we practice, you know, we had to practice as a group a lot, like just, it was weird to practice for the recording, you know, but it was worth it because it worked really well. Yeah. We were really drilling. Yeah. But. Yeah. I mean, the thing that strikes me, especially listening to In Bliss, the new record, is how everything has its own place sonically, not just like in terms of like the frequency spectrum, but when it happens in time. Like there's a lot of like trading ideas across instruments and mm-hmm. not like getting in each other's way musically, which to me like seems like something you'd have to be pretty diligent about hammering into place. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Did these songs go through a, a variety of different arrangements or how did you settle on the, the shape that they generally take? I feel like it happens in practice, like just it when we're happens. learning it, you know? Yeah, I don't think we do a lot of like burning it, like tearing it back down and starting again from scratch in arrangements. I feel like we, uh, one thing, Jameson was always like a noodling, Jameson's descent player. So a lot of what that, you know, everything sort of in its correct, it's like me and Nadav use one, basically one, I have one guitar tone on the whole record and he has one bass tone. Like I use some pedals, but they were always on. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's like one song where I have a a wah pedal and there's like a one song where I use distortion and like that's basically other than that, it's just like, I really like the probably the biggest influence on this band from in my the, what I'm, when I'm writing is that band Tops, and I was like very affected by the last few Tops records, and they they basically just have like they have one keyboard preset, they have one guitar sound, and they have one bass sound. But they use bass. It always sound everything always sounds right because there's it's one way. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so a lot of the like flavor that you hear in the different songs um, is either just writing differently or or it's Jameson. And so Jameson I think did a lot of like changing patches and trying different parts and moving his whole part up and down an octave while we would play but he didn't have to like have to worry about what we were doing in that way he could sort of like decide what the flavor of the song was going to be in that sort of way he added like all the color and i imagine it's easier to make those decisions when you know that the other musicians in the band are kind of know their lane you know and are pretty locked into their sounds already that i imagine that would give him a lot of room to take some risky choices uh, i'm not familiar with the band tops though what's what's the what's the lowdown on them they're like uh they draw from the same like sophistapop influences as us they're on that label arbitus um they were part of that like warehouse scene in montreal with grimes and like little gotcha. hawaii and stuff uh-huh. and uh yeah and uh, they have they're this record really called, good they're really good they have this record called picture me staring picture you staring this is funny. I'm about, to, I'm about to be like one of my favorite albums of all time. And I'm like, what's the title of the album? I don't remember. <laughs> but I remember when it came out and like the only reviews, all the reviews would just be like very minimal. Three sounds. That's all they, that's like all, everyone was so fixated on a, on how it was minimally arranged, which see, oh, it seemed to me to be a little bit silly that it was like, that, this is the only thing that people heard in this band, but it is true. They, you know, uh, that's often a problem with like music critics is that they will sort of focus on the timbre and not realize that if the timbre is limited, that means they should focus on the songs, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's it's missing the donut for the whole. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so you mentioned that at the time that True Blossom came around and started playing shows, it was a pretty strong DIY scene. What were the other bands sounding like? Were you guys still an anomaly or do you feel like the, the scene had sort of moved closer to the direction of your tastes and what you were doing? I think that the scene from when it was like very much a garage rock, garage punk scene it moved a lot towards the influences that we use the other the other bands that we would play with breathers fantasy guys karaoke karaoke these in the bands that we drew members from like uh newark wilder and twin studies and pop weirdos which were bands that are members of our bands were in dots the bands that members of our band were previously in much more influenced but like like types of synth pop bands and that i i've thought it was a weird thing that happened because i it really happened in front of me like i had this like band called goldilocks that like uh was sort of a type of like jangle pop band mm-hmm. and even then it was like all guitars no sense there wouldn't never have any like a drum machine we were like kind of just like a loud almost like a power pop band and even then we were like completely out of step with what was going on we just like weren't enough of a punk band. It was just like a, we played at the shows and all these people were cool with us, but we was like clear that we were a bit of a, um, an outlier. And then by the time I, it happened so quickly that sort of like an Atlanta synth pop scene appeared. By the time I formed this neck, this sec, this band was after that, which we used a drum machine and had a synth player and really de-emphasized the guitar. And it was like very dreamy. Suddenly there were all these bands that we played shows with and it just sort of like materialized out of nowhere. And that scene is mostly still around. Do you think that has something to do with, you know, you mentioned that people would leave to go to college and then end up coming back. Do you think like the fact that people came back maybe with different influences and different tastes sort of? I think it's actually that um, Georgia State, the university in, in Atlanta became a bigger deal and people started, it used to be a bit of a commuter school for like adults and like continuing education and stuff. And it around this time became 
or like a school that kids that lived outside of Atlanta or even grew up in the city of Atlanta would uh would go to and live at like a normal you know four year university whatever. So there were then suddenly there was a bunch of like college kids around. It became mm-hmm. like a college town like all of a sudden. Um, and I think that's a big part of it. I think the other thing that led it is that Atlanta that caused this is Atlanta has this weird has weirdly been blessed slash cursed with a lot of very good like uh, bar venues with like real sound systems that are not DIY venues that are like, uh, well, you know, well, they're not DIY venues. They're for profit bars and restaurants that have stages. There's the Earl, the Drunken Unicorn, 529. And there's always ones that barely get used, but could like the basement and stuff. And so they would be these, you because and th- those places would like kind of treat bands the right way better than when I go on tour, I'm always like horrified. Like, real commercial venues will be like so shitty um, <laughs> and the DIY spaces will be so much better. It's like in Atlanta for a long time during this right around the time when we were forming and it's still, well, I mean, it's hard to say if it's true now, now there's the fucking, you know, epidemic, but like none of these shows are happening, but there weren't really a ton of like house shows and stuff. Cause you kind of could just play five two nine and get the yeah. best of both worlds. And so the DIY shows would happen in places where they would have four DIs, three monitors, huge stacks of speakers uh you know all this stuff so if you before you know it's like can you imagine like trying to be like a synth pop band and like show up in a basement and be like i hope especially like if you play to a drum machine on the drummer you have a drum machine it's like i hope this is going to be loud enough or audible or you know any of this will make any sense Um, right can they hear me like it's nice having someone running sound i mean out of yeah. a real sound system and stuff yeah so i think that that's a big part of it um and maybe if all those venues have to close down it all might change who knows right I, but i think that's a big thing that drives how atlanta kind of has like this like real synth pop scene yeah that that's that makes a lot of sense it kind of ties into like the david byrne thing of like the sound of where people listen to the music shaping the way that the music is made you know like mm-hmm. the sound of cbgb's created the bands that sounded that way rather than the other way around mm-hmm. or the requirements of like listening to music in your car accentuates certain elements in the mix versus in a concert hall you know uh, so mm-hmm. that that all that all tracks to me you you mentioned that there does there was a pretty straight line from the heater material right into the in bliss material were these songs being written at the same time as each other or like how did you differentiate one from the other if they were happening in such close proximity? The In Bliss ones are the ones that we wrote after we tracked drums for Heater. <laughs> um, I think I wrote uh, Just Us Two like a matter of weeks after we tracked the drums to Heater. There's, there is a leftover song that we tried to track on Heater. It's um, Ruiner. Mm. We tracked it for Heater, but we just didn't get a good take. We weren't happy with how it was coming out. Uh, so we just said, we'll just get it next time. So mm. that one's actually from that batch of songs. Yeah, that that would make sense that there's some crossover between the two. Did you have like other songs that you were writing that didn't make either record? Like, were you churning out a lot of songs or did you know pretty clearly that these were the ones that needed to be on each? Were there not a lot of B-sides, I guess is the question. I don't think we have any. If we mm-hmm. like, if we finish some, we, we quality control it. Before. The way we quality control songs is if they're not good, we don't finish them, I guess. Uh, <laughs> sure, sure. That's true, yeah. And so, Sophie, was this your first time no, you mentioned that you were recording on these other projects, but since coming back to Atlanta, this was like your first time being in a band and back in the studio. Um, did you change the way that you were sing- like, I'm assuming you had changed as a vocalist from one period of time to another. Uh, what was that yeah. process like getting back in the studio? Oh, it's probably the most fun thing about being in a band, I would say is recording. Um, for me, at least I like that more um, than even performing. Um, or touring or the other fun things that you do. But yeah, it was really, it's a really nice process. I, I love recording. It's really fun. I feel like for me, it's something where I can feel confident that it's going to go well and like I have more control over it. I don't know if that makes sense. Like it's nice to be able to just take the time to get it right, which I think other people agree to in the band probably. It's like, you know that you can make it as good as you want to or as good as you can at least but um it's really fun um and my friend Paul records the vocals and so it's kind of fun because I've, I've known him since we were five and it's just kind of a nice 
easy process um, and I'm not nervous and feel comfortable and it's kind of, we goof off and it's fun. So is there a difference between like the way that you would have previously sung in like live bands and then did you have to like change the way that you sang for the studio at all? For sure. I feel like I, I feel like I change, I think about how I'm going to sing a song for each song that we do um, a little bit because, you know, there, I call it my karaoke voice. I can like sing in a more belting tone, but that's not really like what I think makes sense for Tree Blossom. Yeah. I I think I try to like knowing that the way that I sound on this record and I mean, generally the way that when I'm just singing in my house, how I sound, it's like, it's not like I have this big voice or anything, but it can be clear and, you know, there's some good things about it. And so try to listen to people that have maybe more distinctive voices than me and see what I can draw from the way that they even say certain words. So that's kind of was what was different to me. Whereas before, when I was, you know, in high school recording for things, um, it was more like, just how I was singing at the time. But as I've gotten older, I can't sing quite as high. <laughs> Probably lots of reasons why that might be, but um, <laughs> don't want to out myself too much here. But um, I think just like le- adjusting and trying to find ways that I can make my voice, which is, you know, somewhat of a regular voice sound interesting, or at least a little bit different from track to track. So that's kind of a big part of why recording is fun, I think, too, because you're like, especially um, Chandler's a really good producer. <laughs> so we'll be in the um, singing, recording, vocal recording process together, and he'll be like, try it like, you know, this way. And then that's kind of fun because it's like a new way of thinking about it. As, I remember you know, when we were recording at one point, she she was like, the way she was singing the song like wasn't working for her. She was like, I have an idea. I'm going to sing this one like a little choir boy, like Lindsay Jordan. And I was like, I have no idea what that means. But try it. And it was then it was great. Yeah. Like, I don't know what Lindsay Jordan has to do with a choir boy, but yeah. or any of those things have to do with the song. But then it sounded perfect. I forget what song, I wish I remembered what song it was. The real thing is like is like I become a real monster when everybody in the band sings on in Bliss, which is, you know, was really fun for me because I love when other people are singing as well. Um, and so I would get to give the feedback then and be like, think about like, uh, I one time, I think Adam, our drummer, he was singing and I was like, you're attacking too much. Like you need to be sing- thinking about how you're singing to a baby or something, you know? Um, he, he, so I was like, you're singing to the baby. You don't want to wake it up. But I felt like, I don't know, some old church choir lady or something, but it was super, um, it was super fun. And I, I wish I could do that every time, but, um, you know, that's probably the most fun for me. And I just love people bringing in harmonies. And there's on Just Us too. Nadav, our bassist, he sings. Um, and just the tone of his voice is really nice on that song, I think. It's like a kind of a partner to me on that song. He's my two, I would guess, of Just Us too, vocally at least. <laughs> you mentioned that there were like other singers that you would listen to to see, like to pick up tricks from and hear how they're attacking certain words. Uh, what, what singers are you are you thinking of specifically? Yeah, so um, definitely Lindsay Jordan from Snail Mail. I feel like she has a really interesting voice. Katie Crutchfield of Waxahachie, for sure. It's kind of like lyrically, but I, I, some some like Lucinda Williams. I like a lot of country music. Um, mm-hmm. Probably the most, well, I don't know. I've got some people on my side now from the band, I think. Probably the most country person. But those two especially, I feel like, have really distinct voices that I find are also like just really clear and strong uh so i try to just think of ways that they would say certain words and ways that they can be expressive when they're singing um those two especially i would say it's interesting like hearing both of you talk about some of the influences and like points of comparison that you're drawing out because it's entirely stuff that i wouldn't have made the connection or like stuff that i'm unaware of because i don't know maybe it's like kind of the dumbed down way of looking at it, but I hear like a sophisticated band. I just go Sade, you know, <laughs> I just, like, a, for sure. I listened to so much Sade when one of the songs on the record was just, or it's working title was Sade because uh-huh. it was such an, a stone Sade ripoff. D- which um, one was it? If you don't mind me asking. It, it was Ruiner. <laughs> okay. That, like, yeah. That guitar riff that I play when I wrote the song, it basically was the riff from The Sweetest Taboo. And I was like, got to change it. So I just sort of like arbitrarily changed it so it wouldn't be The Sweetest Taboo, like literally Mm -hmm. exactly the same guitar part, or at least the same rhythm. 
the same right. like strumming pattern. But like the bands, like what are the sophisticated bands? Like uh, like like late rock, like Avalon by Roxy Music, Orange Juice. I guess it's a thin line between that and like yacht rock. Like these are both like categories that kind of are pretty mm-hmm. loose uh and so i've <laughs> uh, like last year i'd be uh, the most recent victim of becoming a steely dan guy uh, congrats yeah. Yeah. yeah we actually do a cover of peg now we were quite influenced oh. by steely dan <laughs> fuck yeah that's great <laughs> i would love to hear that we got to do it like twice and then, fucking and then we had to stop doing shows yeah. we were gonna go on tour we were gonna go out the fucking down the east coast playing peg every night yeah folks were gonna know our name yeah <laughs> <laughs> We probably we had to like like Adam had to like get in the practice space and practice that uh, hi hat pattern for mm-hmm. like a couple of weeks before we could practice it. But then as soon as we practiced it, we were just like there's there it is. It just sounds like our band playing this. Like we just already sound like this because yeah. <laughs> yeah. When we go on tour, I feel like especially if the person is uh, maybe a little bit older, they're like steely dan <laughs> uh, <laughs> we get a lot of we do get, we do get yeah. steely dan a lot which is great Love but it. all the big obvious stuff is like probably the biggest influences for me in the songwriting and this has been true for years for me even before this band is the first four madonna records and then just the the instrumentation in the smiths not really the like yes morrissey is not really a singer or person who writes melodies that can really be like you can't get much it's like he's in his own weird universe of right melody but Johnny Marr and Andy Rourke, those are like everything they ever did. And then like the first one we on records and then like, like sort of eighties Fleetwood Mac. Mm-hmm. It's like big, obvious stuff that you would, you would think when you heard our band, like, yes, all those are like huge influences. And then vocally, uh, Sophie, your vocals kind of remind me of Julie Cruz at times. Yeah. Um, the thing that like struck me was like, you're, you're talking about the difference between like your, your loud singing and your quiet singing. And she was like a Broadway singer that then started singing dream pop just like professionally, you know? See, and I was Emma Goldman in my time. There we go. (laughs) It was definitely not a, you know, soprano part. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the way that these sort of genres of like kind of more cool, reserved very like technically astute pop music have have sort of had this like resurgence of popularity among millennials as they're growing up and like you know when i saw the bio on on the citrus Bandcamp, pointing out like city pop for example as a as like a genre that y'all could fall into i was thinking about how that's so much of like an internet genre like the fandom for it is like very online and mm-hmm. i was wondering yeah, how it's not even apparently really having a resurgence in Japan. It's like just on in the U.S. on the internet. And so, what do you what do you what do you make of that like kind of sudden interest from like aging millennials in bands like Steely Dan and and the sophisticated pop sound? Like, how do you how do you square that? I don't know. I've actually thought a lot about this, and I don't know if I can actually. I was gonna say, I think for some people, it's the influence of the music that they grew up with. But for me, my parents are my parents are a little bit older. So like when I started really getting into like Fleetwood Mac, love Fleetwood Mac. And I think that they would say they are, they're not like haters, but that definitely wasn't necessarily cool music to them at the time. Like ABBA. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they were just like, like at that point, my dad would tell you he was only listening to jazz, you know? Um, right. And so <laughs> therefore he did like Steely Dan, but it's just, it's interesting. So I think a lot of it is like, for people that don't necessarily have, you know, older boomer parents, that's like music that they grew up listening to. Um, but then I think also now it's like, there's kind of this return to, um, don't kill me, but I, cause I love it, but I think maybe like a little bit more easy listening type of music, you know, like the Yacht Rock and people just like, it's fun. And I, I don't know why. I mean, I know it's fun. That's probably a big reason why, but yeah, I think that definitely I confuse my parents about that because <laughs> they're like, we thought we raised you better, than, you know, than like you know, Hollow Notes. But I mean, I love, I fucking love Hollow Notes. You know? <laughs> That's so what funny. You- the idea of like parents being like, oh, you're making such pleasant music. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's really yeah. a thing. Like it's, uh, I think that was sort of always okay. So the thing. The thing that's weird to me about it is all this music, the sophisticated pop, especially city pop, was very associated with like a rising middle class, like the me generation boomers finally getting rich in the 80s and the Japanese, the, the what was the name of the tiger economy? Is that 
where am I? Is that the Irish? The boom in the eighties, right? Yeah, like the tech um, boom that happened yeah. in Japan in like the eighties and nineties. Yeah, so it's associated with this like petite bourgeois, like carefree, like age of plenty, which is just not the experience of American millennials so far in our lives. Right, and that- the it, the people that listen to this music are not like the ones that are. Uh, it's not like people that are getting like uh, on the yacht. Yeah, they're gonna like high-powered lawyers that want to come home and like relax after they're so they put on like a uh, Yumi Zuma. No, it's like kids that work in restaurants all the time. I think that part of it might be though the I don't think it actually might be that different than like the appeal of indie pop like 15 years ago to us when we were teenagers, which was mm-hmm. that it's like the feminization of the way it was perceived as feminine, the way it was perceived as like too soft, this response that you gave, that Sophie's describing from her parents being like, ABBA, like that thing, like it almost felt sort of like subversive in a way, in a sort of like ant- weird, contradictory, unexpected way. I don't know. Um, right, like if the if the typical sound of rock music or indie music is this kind of like macho rock and roll thing, then mm-hmm. changing directions and making sophistipop actually would be like, quote unquote, more punk. Yeah. Or like music at the time was maybe more political, like, and that was what maybe a lot of people were more into and like didn't quite have the the space for the ABBA sound, you know, when they were mm-hmm. listening to, you know, I don't know, Marvin Gaye, you know, it's like, it, it's kind of, I think that also is a bit of a separation, um, which doesn't really hit now because we're like, we don't necessarily need we don't necessarily go to music for that kind of view, even though it can be really nice. Um, it's just like, there's lots of other media to consume for that. Also, it's like the the way that t- like moving through time kind of can remove those barriers between stuff. So you can make music that may have politically meant one thing, but under a totally different right. circumstance now. Right. Yeah. So, so I think, yeah, part of it is, yeah, like we don't have, I don't have any conception of what like a, what a Steely Dan fan is or a Fleetwood Mac fan. Like what kind of person's a fan of Fleetwood Mac? Like when I started listening to those kind of, that kind of music like 10 years ago or whatever, I was like, I don't know someone old. Yeah. Like, you know, it didn't, Me? it wasn't like, oh, all those rich kids. Like I didn't know, you know. Right. And so I think that, but but I think that yeah. in, if you look at it this way as something that's like anti-macho in a certain kind of way, isn't that different than when we listened to Yoa Tango and Bell and Sebastian and Bright Eyes back when we were all 18? It's just like the same thing. It's just a little bit more, like formalized songwriting. Yeah, different timbres, different sense of harmony, certainly. I was going to ask if any of y'all have had like jazz experience or like proper music training because there's a lot of, you know, pretty slick stuff happening in the harmony at time or are you are you self-taught? I have oh, yeah. like basic, I have like basic music theory knowledge. Like I took like music theory one and two in college, like, but nothing like i didn't take any jazz classes or anything i think adam has studied jazz but he's the drummer so there's that's not anything happening harmonically jameson i think had like really formal piano lessons and knows music theory so we when we talk it when me and jameson would would compose and talk we would be talking in terms of like uh functional harmony yeah um and nine chords and you know major seventh and like all this stuff well and bonnie for sure too yeah everyone in the band she teaches music theory yeah but not like jazz i don't think any of us have like studied jazz yeah that's when i yeah that's when i quit piano yeah (laughs) (laughs) just like like, basic functional music theory harmony stuff yeah it was a little (laughs) overwhelming because you took like I feel like I was very mathematical about music and piano and very like, I'm just going to follow the directions and practice and it's going to sound great, you know, in a few months. Um, and then jazz was like, it requested a lot of um, trust that I didn't necessarily have in myself at 18 years old. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I really just wanted to like go and drink beers with my friends instead. Uh, so that's kind of what I did, but um, I did stay in college. So <laughs> mission successful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I wish I had, I wish I, like, if, if I have a child one day and they want to play music, I would try to encourage them to start that way first, rather than the more methodical, like getting out the book and learning the notes. Um, just because I think it makes it easier and maybe a little bit more fun in, in the end, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think, Chandler? I, it's, it's not such a distinction to me because I did it. Like the first two songs I learned were songs my friend wrote um, when I was like 13, you know? I like picked up an instrument to be in my friend's band. So the first things I learned were songs he wrote. 
and then you know I, over time i also like learn theory yeah i guess taylor and i have the more like classical background first yeah he studied like classical um, guitar classical guitar like flamenco kind of stuff but he wasn't even learning theory he was like learning performance and jameson was like a he was a like a, a very serious folk musician when he was like a teenager um which he, he has thoroughly like rejected that part it's of amazing it's yeah. amazing or were we talking like bob dylan style stuff like what yeah what do you mean? yeah have yeah. you ever where it's like all, all about the lyrics and just like g to c over and over again and it's <laughs> right. very like he, his his favorite band was the mountain goats i think when he was like 13 you know gotcha yeah, yeah, kind yeah. Of thing. oh it's just phenomenal like... oh yeah <laughs> um have you ever to me it reminds me of um <laughs> lots of bright eyes talk tonight but um, Connor versus first band Commander Venus. Check it out if you okay. <laughs> um, I, but it really <laughs> I did have a bright eyes phase, but it didn't go that deep. I, yeah. So. Oh yeah. That was yeah, we he were was in a whole <laughs> successful rock band before his voice changed. It's amazing. <laughs> so his voice is like it's really something. It's like a it's like a little child singing. Yeah. Like, the songs are dope dreaming. though. Like he always had it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? like, My other theory is that once you're like good enough at your instruments, and I would say all of you are, are very good musicians, that if you're going to express that instrumental skill at some point, like Sophista Pop is a very natural outlet to that, that isn't like super show-off-y. You know, it's like, it's a way to be a good musician and still like make music that people want to listen to. I had to, I had to like learn how to be better at guitar to be in this band. I wasn't, it's, <laughs> it was, it was, we got dragged into having to like learn how to play our instruments better to make this kind of music. I promise it was the other way. And like, I would do all this like chopping, like that, you know, like a funk disco guitar or whatever. <laughs> and my rhythm was just garbage when we started. I like couldn't keep up. And so I had to go home and like practice guitar for the first time in my life. And I was like, what did I do? forming this stupid band now i have to <laughs> practice guitar like a fucking loser i try to not well i actually don't get a lot of like wow you're guitar playing because like when you're in like a disco style band it's like the guitar kind of it's like you use those like uh out of phase i use like those out of phase like strat tones and i just disappear into the rhythm section you know uh the dob gets a lot of like wow you're bass playing yes um, yeah that He's was kind of star. who i was thinking of <laughs> because that yeah <laughs> some some lines on that on the new record the dove, sure. an interesting thing about the dove is that he used to um he used to be in just like a pretty straightforward punk scene in memphis and dudes just wouldn't give him the time of day and respect him and like he had to learn bass because no one would let him play guitar he's like an incredible guitarist but lucky for us because he's really good at bass as well. so he sort of has always been like i'm gonna get better at my instrument than all of you so right. he's actually very he's a very technically skilled guitarist and and bassist but he's really the only one that ever like i, th I think of anyone in the band that ever sought out like chops gotcha. didn't, didn't he play guitar on the title track in bliss mm -hmm. yeah he has this like huge pedal board he's a really good guitarist but he's the times he like become he's happy to be a guy that basically plays the pedals instead of the guitar really uh he does right. some of that on he's the the guitar player on the title track because there's no, he doesn't, there's no bass, it's all programmed. Uh, I also noticed there's, there's a lot of saxophone on this record as well. That seems like a new, uh, a new flavor. Well, a logical one to add, but it, it, the arrangements in general, I feel like took a big step up uh, on the second record. It's, you know, more layered sounds and this, the sax solos and whatnot. So it, you got some other people involved on, uh, on this record. Is that right? Or is it just more? No, it's all me. right. Damn! I bought a saxophone, or got a, I got a saxophone for Christmas or something, and like when I like when I was like eight, nineteen or something, um, and played it, learned how to play some scales. But love is just like, I was like interested in like really noisy, grimy ass. Like I got really into Charles Mingus, <laughs> and uh, that was sort of like a, a a through like a flavor of going around in the indie world at the time was that kind of like like the noise you know like noise punk was happening so there were like people that were doing things like that and i was like i'm gonna learn how to play i like that stuff i'm gonna learn how to play the saxophone and then i realized like you can't just like like that kind of like gnarled like scronky i guess is the word playing is just like impossible like you're not something you can just like pick up so i played the saxophone for a while and then put it away for like literally a decade and i don't know what I have no recollection of deciding to go get the saxophone out of my dad's basement. I think it's, I think part of it is that that band twin sister who like I really admire and like many people in the band admire that dude, the guitarist just showed up on stage. I went and saw them live and he was just playing the saxophone. I was like, man, this dude's the same age as me. If he could just start playing the saxophone, 
I'm going to go fucking get my saxophone. Fuck this guy. <laughs> um, I think that's what happened. Anyway, yeah, that's me playing saxophone. I had to like, and I did have to, God, I had to practice. It sucked. I had to buy it. And I had to get a second saxophone because I needed an alto and a tenor. It was like, in retrospect, a terrible decision. <laughs> it seems like you've really forced yourself into a corner of being good. Yeah, <laughs> from the way you're describing it. <laughs> I used to be garb. I used to be like trash at guitar because I didn't need, you know, I was like in a jangle pop band. I'm just strum. Um, I'm a very like melody first. That's how I think about music or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I'm just, I'll just play the chords. Well, I'm glad you I did it. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think it really adds, I don't know, it made me very excited to put out the record. And um, and you played it live a couple of times, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. It's always like met with a lot of like ooh and ah, because people, it's very fun to see someone <laughs> playing yeah. a horn on stage. Yeah, people like it when bands like go all the way in that way, you know? <laughs> like you hear yeah. a few of your songs and then like a saxophone comes out and it's like, yeah. 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 <laughs> I do want to briefly touch on the lyrics. Uh, since they weren't posted online, I didn't have like a great sense of what was going on. But y- you mentioned that you wrote all the lyrics. What What was your, uh, what kind of stuff were you trying to write about for, for this new record? It's funny. It doesn't feel like, you know, we wrote Heater and then I was like, the next record will be about this or anything like that. Um, mm. It's this kind of, because the way that when we feel like we can play a song live, we go ahead and do it. And so that's usually when I write the lyrics so that I have something to say. And then, you know, sometimes they'll change over time and, um, you know, folks will give me feedback, which is nice. But I think generally I try to uh, draw on my own experiences and then the experiences of people that I know and don't know and try to like basically each song kind of draws from both. So it's like extra confusing for all my friends and family. <laughs> Do you get um, any like concerned text messages or anything? I've gotten a couple like, are you okay? <laughs> really? But um, yeah, just in the past, like in general, like, you know. <laughs> <It's a wild. laughs> but you know, they're like, That's a lot. <laughs> but you know, um, it's just, uh, I mean, it's funny. Like I, I'm somebody writing about like, you know, it's supposed to be like these relatable, like, you know, relationship and life issues. And I've, you know, I've been with my partner for like 15 years almost now, you know, so it's kind of like a little bit strange, but it's still, I feel like, what did we call it? Like this, this album in the end, like, it wasn't like we started this way, but maybe in the end it was, it winded up being like kind of a, um, and why we named it in bliss would be like, it's kind of like a domestic bliss album, but like, that's obviously like, you know, just because you're with someone doesn't mean you can be happy all the time and you can, you know, it's like shit's complicated, you know. The lyrics for this record kind of remind me of those like mid late 90s Yola Tango records, which were mm-hmm. very much about being married to someone for like a long time. And they would still find a way for it to be like there to be dr- fresh, like, yeah, you know, like dramatic in some way, like have some sort of like not drama as in like causing drama, but as in just like dramaturgy is that the word i'm looking yeah, for like just like something l- lyrical just... tension of some kind that plays out over the course of the song for sure but it wasn't like harrowing it's like right. the little anyway sophie's lyrics from this album reminded me of that a lot is that something you're basically like that kind of approach is continuing on to the next record as well like how far into record three are you at this point i feel like the the couple that come to mind are a little bit more like I would say that the songs themselves are a little bit more like like I, I play like a wood block on one of them live you know like they're out there um and it's like they're kind of they're bigger songs even than um serious boys I feel like but um so I feel like the lyrics for those are a little bit more of your typical like I wish I could be with you tonight, baby, that kind of stuff you know mm. like just more like general like not like sexy songs necessarily but more like just general like pop you know longing songs i would say whereas these on here were a little bit more like that tension that you're saying i feel like there's less tension on the ones that we're working on now but like those aren't finalized or anything um and we haven't played them in a while but um i would say like the if they're definitely a little bit more like fun party songs i don't know what do you think chandler yeah i think they almost kind of seem like like a like mariah carey song lyrics or something (laughs) yeah Oh, yeah. she's a genius. But like, but like Sophie doing that, you know, so it's not right. like a, it's yeah. like a small, small difference. Like less, it's, it's sort of like less, uh, 
in bliss almost has after serious boys like for the rest of the record has a sort of like moonlit quality to the vibe not the sounds but like the general vibe and the record we're working on now i think does sound like more like like actually on a dance floor or like at a party at least i don't know mm-hmm. maybe. and that's a, a musical vibe as well like the the band itself is moving kind of more or at least writing songs in that vein or what's uh you said there was some strange stuff going on so just, i'm just trying to like picture the record in my mind before hearing it the the new ones are also like the songwriting is more like guitar guitar-y i was just started listening to like in excess a lot mm-hmm. and the way they sort of are like they're like this kind of like new wavy disco influenced band but you know the records they made starting with listen like thieves were like very much like big guitar records yeah and, um, and with bonnie playing synth um because jameson had to leave uh the band in atlanta because he went to go get his phd in baltimore and so um our new synth player bonnie it's like these are the first round of songs that we're actually learning with her and like mm-hmm. writing parts with her so it's like feels like a natural progression for it to start sounding a little bit different even you know just mm-hmm. because yeah. um she's contributing you know her ideas and her sound um it's fun I'm, i think we're all it, i mean i think we're all very lucky to always be excited about what we're doing next um, as a band. You know, it's not like we're like, oof, don't like this. Um, so I think everyone's was very excited about what we were doing and hopefully we can get back in there sometime. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the way that I usually, I've been ending a lot of these podcasts lately is just sort of going over like the state of things in, during the COVID era. Like obviously you said you were planning to do some touring and that fell through for reasons outside of all of our control but and you you are not able to practice currently but what are you do you have any plans to like try and promote the record in any way or do you have anything kind of lined up in the future that you can do absent live performances we don't really have any plans we had talked about doing a live stream with a media company here in atlanta but this just keeps getting pushed back because just the caseload is not super great here. Um, and just, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't seem that safe yet. And so I think, I think, you know, you are seeing more people doing live streams. We, you know, we could do something like that, but you know, it just requires work from other people. Um, so it's just like, it's not like Chandler and I know how to like film ourselves and make it sound good, you know, like we're just show up to play, you know? So it's Mm -hmm. kind of like, we did some live streams that were just me and Sophie so that we could, didn't have to, A, so we didn't really have to practice very much. And then also just like three people, fewer people in the room to just like reduce the risk of exposure. But like, that's not our band, you know, like our band doesn't right. sound like that. Like we did a bunch of covers and it was just a completely different sound and it was super fun. It's just, it's not true Blossom, you know. And um, we can't, this is really fun for me is working on new stuff. I just like we have this back catalog of songs that we were working on or about to. And it's like, we can't do any of that until we can all get in a room together. Yeah. It's kind of like our process is biting us right now because <laughs> we can't all actually be together. Um, even though I still think that's the best process for us. It's still, you know, our practice space is like the size of a utility closet, you know, and it's, it's not ventilated and, you know, it's just, there's five of us. We all have our own households and it's, you know, mm-hmm. But um, I'm hoping that that will change. I just, I think what's hard is we don't know when. And then we don't know if we are able to practice again, if we'll have anywhere to play. Not to be too dark, but that's kind of what goes on in my head, you know? Um, Totally. No, I think that's a legitimate concern, you know? Like, I I feel like the the musicians of the world are, are like chomping at the bit to get back out there, but where out there even is, at yeah. the end of this is going to be, uh, I think, the big question mark. But what else is on the horizon? Is it just like continuing to work on songs or or what's... Uh... Probably the first thing that'll happen is when we're finally safe, um, when caseloads are low enough, or if there's a vaccine, it might even be that long. Uh, whether there's somewhere to play or anything to do, we can get back in our, our space and just play together and work on new material. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that we probably won't be able to do a ton of shows right away means that probably just start working on the third record i mean we were gonna probably if there was hadn't been a pandemic we probably would have tracked it already yeah um, that's, what that's I'm a good point about. i'm gonna work on these new songs like you know the other ones are going well like it is strange though putting out a record i was thinking about that today and not being able to play any of it live because you don't get this sort of like it's just kind of out there in the universe and people can listen to it or not and that's i mean 
all that is fine. There's not really any expectations around that, but it's like not being able to like perform live and get that kind of like feedback, even if it's unsaid is, it's just kind of like, feels strange. Like it didn't really happen or something, you know? <laughs> like, um, the funny thing is we've been playing these songs for live for over, for, we had been playing them for over a year when we had to stop playing because we like finished writing it, like, you know, before the first record even came out. So the whole time people have been watching us live, when we played live together, we were playing songs in this record the yeah, whole time. Yeah, no, I, I recognized a few of them from that, for sure. Yeah. And the record comes out, it's like, well, no more. <laughs> no more live. <laughs> yeah, yeah so. if you missed it, too bad, yeah. <laughs> well, at least people will have the record to listen to, and I'll do mm -hmm. my best to spread it out as far as I can. And uh, I wanted to say thank thanks to both of you for coming on the podcast and talking and all that. Um, thanks for thank having you. us. Thank you. Fingers yeah, crossed that things improve and that we can play shows together again sometime soon. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I know. I hope to see you in Atlanta. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I hope right. y'all can come back to New York sometime, too. So, yeah. yeah. We, we will someday. We'll, we'll be back. It'll always be on the list. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>